Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. So when I started Detoxicity back in 2020, I had a short list of people that I really wanted to be guests on the podcast. And uh, one of the people on that list was Dave Holmes, who you may know from a variety of things. He is an actor. He was an MTV VJ. He is a pop culture writer. He is an author. He uh, is, has a wide and varied resume. Uh, here we are, three and a half years after the beginning of Detoxicity, and Dave Holmes is the guest of this episode. Never give up on your dreams, folks. <laughs> Seriously, though, uh, why did I want Dave Holmes on this podcast in the first place? I think I, I had recently finished reading his memoir, uh, Party of One, when I decided to start the podcast off. And his memoir really spoke to me in a lot of ways. Um, we happen to have a lot of common, a lot of common, a lot in common. Uh, we're both queer. Uh, we were both born in the 70s. We are both obsessives about pop culture, specifically music. Uh, we are both diabetic. Uh, so uh, I, I almost, and I think I actually do joke in the episode that I might be the black Dave Holmes. Uh, he came first. But beyond that, there is a charm and a relatability uh, that speaks to me in his social media posts, that spoke to me in his writing, that spoke to me uh, when watching him on TV, and uh, an honesty in that that I really like to have in my guests. Also, I knew that he fucking liked to talk, so I knew that our conversation would be a good one. Anyway, uh, we cover parts of every single thing I just mentioned uh, in terms of our commonalities, and we discussed a couple of things that uh, we don't have in common. So uh, whether you know Dave as any of the things that I mentioned before, uh, you will now also know him as a guest on Detoxicity. So uh, without any further ado, I... <laughs> I introduce you to the white Mike Joseph, Dave Holmes. Hello. Hello there. Hello. My name is Dave Holmes. I'm a writer. I'm an editor at large for Esquire magazine. I do a lot of TV and radio hosting and, and podcasting and live shows and all sorts of stuff. I don't know how to quickly and pithily say who I am or what I do, which is kind of a problem for management. So when you do a lot of things, I feel like that's a little bit more difficult than just saying, like, hey, I'm a lawyer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's still a weird industry that when you meet 
with people. They want to know what you do. And it's like, well, I kind of do a little bit of everything. And I'm kind of interested in a little bit of everything. And that makes it a little difficult, but that's life. That's life. I am really psyched to be interviewing you for a number of reasons. I've had you on the list for a minute. Yeah. And so we're about the same age. That's one. Uh-huh. We're both music geeks of the highest order. Yep. We are both in the LGBTQ spectrum, uh-huh. both diabetic. And I was like, am I Black Dave Holmes? You might be. <laughs> you have hair and I don't. So I think that's where well, we separate. Okay. I can't tell. Yeah. All right. Well, you're working it. I'm doing my best. Good. So, so many things I wanted to ask. And I guess the first question, and I'm also going to ask questions and know the answer to because I read your book, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like they're, they'd be better coming explained from you. Right. Where did your pop culture geekdom, and I say that lovingly, where did that kind of all-encompassing knowledge of random shit yeah. that, that happened? Yeah. Well, I take it respectfully and lovingly. I was always into music because I, I'm... Irish Catholic. There was always music playing in the house. My parents would sing a lot. And and it's just kind of part of all of our lives. And I'm the youngest of three boys. I have two brothers who are eight and 10 years older. And so they could do a lot of things that I couldn't do when I was a little kid. But the one thing that we could do all together was sing along to the radio. And I had an oldest brother who got real into the kind of late 70s college music that was starting to happen like the Clash and the B-52s and that kind of thing. Uh, and I had a middle brother who was really into R&B and funk music. And I loved both of those things and so much more. And I, I never really became an athlete. I was never much of a student. And knowing and being obsessed with pop culture a little bit became kind of my brand. And when you're a little kid, you're looking for a brand. You might not think of it that way, but you're looking to figure out kind of what sort of person you are. And I knew a lot about it. I've come to know in adulthood that I have pretty severe attention issues. And with that comes a kind of hyper-focus. And popular culture was the area that I hyper-focused on. And that kind of just became my thing. And I got lucky enough to kind of find a life within it, which is still bewildering to me. I'm thrilled, but it still doesn't make a lot of sense. It's amazing as someone who's worked in the music industry for a long time, I, I still kind of bug out sometimes when I think to myself and I'm like, okay, there are some people who are as obsessive as you okay. are. It, it kind of struck me as, hey, not everybody gets to quote unquote follow their dream, right? Not everybody right. gets to do the thing that they're obsessive about when they're younger. And there is a level of being fortunate in a way to actually have had that follow through and be a part of your entire career. Yeah, I'm incredibly lucky because I knew what kind of person I was and what kinds of things I was interested in and good at, but I just never imagined that I'd be able to find a life within it. I don't know why. I mean, the idea of being a famous actor or whatever is obviously you never know. And there's a lot of luck involved in that. And I wasn't in love enough with acting to put all of my chips on acting. But working within the music industry, that's a thing you can do. There's a whole industry around, or at least there was a whole industry around (laughs) it. And there were places where you could get an education and also learn things about that industry. And I just was too dumb, or I don't know if there was some internalized homophobia to it. I shouldn't work in pop culture because that's sort of gayish or whatever. And I should do something more like what men do, or I don't know. There's a lot of dumb shit in there. 
in a, a gumbo of weirdness. So I, I moved into a different direction. I worked in advertising for a while, and then I just got lucky enough to, to get this MTV job, and it set my life on a completely different path. And now I do get to do the stuff that I'm interested in and that makes me excited. That's an amazing thing. And yeah, I got very lucky. And I want to go back to your childhood, your formative years a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, and discovering your sexuality and being in the Midwest and being in an Irish Catholic family and being one of three boys and... I'm assuming I'm Roman Catholic, but you know I, oh, our situations are a little bit different. How your sexuality sort of conflicted with what you thought a man was, or what you were taught what a man was as you were growing up. Yeah, I'll tell you, it was in my early years. Pretty much knew I was gay forever, even before puberty, even before it was sexual. I was really just drawn to men and older boys. There was just something that I was enchanted by. And even in a pre-sexual way, I always just kind of knew that about myself. And then during puberty, when a sexual identity becomes apparent, it was a source of real panic for me because even in the 70s, when you would hear about gay people, or there would be something on the news about there's a such a thing as gay people, or sitcom would have as you'll read about in Hi, Honey, I'm Homo, would have one episode gay character. It was always talked about as something to be pitied or something to overcome or endure or whatever. It was never joyful. It was never happy. It was always something that was a little bit shameful. And certainly the F word is wildly popular among young boys. And it is the easiest thing to call somebody. It is the thing that you don't want to be called. And the thing that scared me the most about it was that it was, you didn't get a chance to be a second thing. If you were a gay kid, if you were perceived to be a gay kid, then that was your thing. That was your identity, right? You couldn't be gay and tall or whatever, gay and kind of selfish or whatever. It was just like, you're just a gay kid. You're just the F word, right? And and that always kind of freaked me out because I didn't want to be nothing. I didn't want to be a, a thing that was shameful and then nothing else. And then add to that, the summer I turned 12 or 13 or whatever, AIDS becomes front page news. And it's on the Walter Cronkite news hour or whatever summer it was called. But what it, suddenly it's like there is a disease that is killing gay people. And I'm too young and Catholic to understand how that works. I'm just assuming that it's like God throwing AIDS at people from a cloud. And it's a terrible way to die. And viewed as a shameful way to die and also sort of the butt of every third joke for about 12 years. All of these things are happening. And it was just like, I I didn't want to be cast out. And that's what kind of worried me. The sex part of it didn't stress me out that much, but the idea of being perceived as gay scared the hell out of me. And now, yeah, and it's taken a long time, but... Now, thank God, I am the thing that casts me out of the kingdom of masculinity or manhood or whatever. Thank God, because everything in that kingdom is so boring. (laughs) And the rules of that kingdom, the rules of that army are so strict and, and so rigidly, what's the word that I'm looking for? Everyone's policing their own and other people's behavior so much that it's like, you can't do anything that's fun. You can't be vulnerable. 
You can't talk about emotions, good or bad. You can't cry at a Broadway musical. <laughs> you can't be obsessed with pop culture. You can't do any of this stuff or you're the F word. Right. So thank God, after a certain period of intense anxiety, I came out the other side and it's like, okay, good, good. Now I'm over here and I can do whatever the fuck I want. And you can't tell me what to do or not to do. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I think for some of us of a certain age that came up in that era, whether it was mm -hmm. not having models. To, oh, to, God. When I was a kid, I didn't meet a man who identified as gay or bisexual until I was 17, maybe. And I grew up in New York City. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you wouldn't because... <sighs> You, you took your life in your hands identifying as a gay person. And it was still seen as kind of unseemly to be out as a gay person around young people because everybody's mind at the time went to, and there's this horrible reboot of this thinking where it's like, mm -hmm. if you are a gay person around children, that is by definition, that is grooming or coercion or like evangelism or whatever. You have to be trying to persuade a young person to come and join you in the lifestyle, which is, I really thought we were finished with that. Right. Like we're all the fucking Avon lady going out. And yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy to me. And I think it kind of speaks to the perversion of Christianity that animates this country where it's like, we cannot think of anything through any other frame other than coercion. You can't just be, if you're friends with somebody who's different from you, it's like they're going to try to persuade you to be like they are in whatever way that is. And it's like, no, no, different things can coexist. Yeah. And it's like not everything is about trying to get new members. I can't even remember the first gay person I met. I really can't. You mentioned in your book a story about going to some sort of camp. I don't know if it was for theater. Yeah, or... yeah well, it was for creative writing. Was all different arts, but my program was creative writing. Might that have been the first time you, and I don't even no. know if that person was out at that time. Oh, I know the story that you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. There was a kid in my creative writing program who presented as gay, certainly. And yeah, did seem to be very free. And yeah, had a big dramatic swoosh of blonde hair and was just effeminate and happy and just a fun guy to talk to, but definitely presented way gayer than would have been safe at my school. I went to an all boys Catholic school where it was like, you really had to watch every word and gesture, right? And uh, yeah, I enjoyed that guy's friendship, but yeah, I remember thinking in the real world, we can't be friends. And then I did bump into him at a class field trip and whatever, and his class at his school was having a field trip. We were in the same place. And he said, hello. And it was just like, this can't happen. These right. worlds can't yeah. collide. Yeah. And I totally froze him out. And it's one of those things that still makes me kind of, cringe. It's one of those things that my mind goes to sometimes at 3 a.m. when I can't sleep. But I was lucky enough that my closest high school friend was also gay. It still is. And so we were able to kind of, I mean, we were bi sort of at the time, but we were able to talk about our feelings and our crushes and that kind of thing, which was very important. Right. But then beyond that, yeah, I started late high school, early college going to a gay bar here and there. But that was... Off to the side, it was something that I did not bring into my regular main life. It's like you're living in multiple worlds at the same time. And mm -hmm. that can get 
exhausting. Yeah. It really can. Um, yeah. Was there a moment where you were just like, fuck this. I I need to shed myself of this whatever internalized homophobia you had, all, all that stuff. Was there a specific come to Jesus moment or was it more like a gradual thing? I started telling friends and being more open in college. And I did myself the disservice of also going to a very small Catholic college. And it was a great place. It was a great place. And I met a lot of lovely people and stuff. But it was one of those places where everybody knew everybody's business because there was not much going on. And there weren't a lot of us. And we were so Catholic, we were afraid of sex, no matter what our orientation was. And so it became kind of obvious to me kind of quickly that once a few people knew, pretty much everybody Everyone knew. Right. Yeah. And it was like, well, fuck it, here we are. And in the summer between my junior and senior year, I told my family and after that, it was like, well, who fucking cares anymore? I didn't live on campus my senior year and I had my friends and I was nearly out of there. And so I just was like, nobody was really going to beat me up here, I don't think. And if they're going to think less of me, they already do. So I don't care. And that was extremely freeing. A second thing happened, though, a few years later that I would say is even more significant. And I was very out. So I was out in college, graduated, started my first job, made a point of being out and I still had a mostly straight friend base, but made a point of being out, probably because I was hoping to meet somebody and have sex. Um, <laughs> but I remember I was probably 26, 27. So I'd been out for a few years and I was having brunch with a bunch of friends. It was men and women and straight and gay and whatever. And my best high school friend who was gay, who also lived in New York at the same time, was at that same table. And I don't know if the the subject, if the person we were talking about was someone we knew, or if it was somebody like, it may have been like G-Love or something like that. This will place us in, in time. But Ned, my friend from high school was like, God, I think he's hot. And my first instinct was to shush him expressing his sexuality in the most chaste possible way, because I was like, is there straight people here? And and like, like he didn't think anything of it, probably because that's how I was all the time. But for whatever reason... In that moment, I caught myself like, what the fuck is this? All of these people know I'm gay. What do they think I want to do if I can't express that another man is attractive? And uh, in that moment, I was like, I am being an idiot. I'm trying so hard to please other people or what I think will please other people that I'm not fully inhabiting my own self. And that's crazy. So then I started talking about it, and now now I can't stop. That's great, though. Seventy percent of what I'm of what I talk about at any given time is how hot somebody is. I mean, he love still is, even in middle age, it looks you know, good. I couldn't pull G Love out of a lineup unless you gave yeah. me the cover of that first album. Uh huh. Oh, those eyebrows. <laughs> he was a handsome guy, and apparently he still is. Mm -hmm. So he still is. Yeah. after we talk, I'm going to have to hit the Googles and mm -hmm. uh, take a look. He's at aged him. into a, a very different look, but it's just as well. All right, Dave, now I'm curious. He's become a completely different guy who I also want to make out with. Okay. I yeah. don't know. I'm fonder of middle-aged G-Love than I am okay. of younger G-Love. Okay. So This says more about you than your Zodiac. I mean, you know, people who listen to this podcast, I think, have heard me express my undying affection for Nick Offerman on a couple of occasions. So okay. That's kind of the vibe that I go with. Mm -hmm. so, you and, and reason, my partner. Really? Yeah, that's shout very out, much his Shout out Ben. Vibe. Yeah, I like it. And Ben's big one is Patrick Warburton. 
Ah, uh, yes. Which yep. Can't front on that. He'd be up there too. And actually, on the last episode I just put out, I was talking to somebody about my crush on Zach Brown. So uh, okay, all right. There you go. Sure. Bearish. You've got a type. No. Speaking of which, there is a couple of passages in your book that really, really kind of hit me hard, and one of them was talking about your experience going to gay bars in New York City when you first got there. And there was, I'm trying to say this in a sensitive way. There's an archetype, right? Yeah. And I'm sort of removed from that scene now, so I don't know if that still exists. But Mm -hmm. if you were going to a Chelsea bar in the mid to late 90s, everybody kind of looked the same. Everybody looked exactly the same. (laughs) Everybody very much looked exactly the same. So as someone who looked like you did at the time, and you were a handsome guy, but also- thank you. Of course, a handsome guy in like a regular straight guy kind of way, which again, is kind of like my thing, but not necessarily, if you walk into Champs, you're not going to see necessarily dudes that look like that. No. You didn't have a six pack, all of that stuff. I'm wondering what, and speaking for myself, as a Black guy, as someone who was overweight at the time, I think I might have felt similar feelings walking in there and being like, why doesn't anybody here look like me? And how do I meet people? Because I don't know if even these are the people that I want to be around or date or fuck. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Part of it is the kind of under the radar straight guy affect was, I mean, it was who I was, but there was also sort of a performative element to it because I needed to survive in that world, or I felt that I needed to survive in that world. I think it's mostly who I am and only a small part, the kind of camouflage that one must do to survive. But yeah, I I found it very, I found it very difficult to get along in Chelsea, which really was the gay world of the mid nineties. Yeah. Because I was like, the skills that I have used to survive up to this point will not help me here. These are people who got themselves figured out long before I did or earlier in life than I did and learned to maybe learn to like themselves a little bit better or at least learned how to survive in that world. I just kind of never did. And I mean, I guess there was the eagle or something, but I don't remember there being a bare scene or a place where you could not have the Caesar haircut and the six pack and the flannel shirt with no sleeves and all that kind of thing. And the tribal tattoo. Yeah. It was very clony and I didn't physically fit in. And I also like, didn't like the music. And so I had trouble at first. Free by Ultranate played 700 times in a row. Wasn't doing it for you. (laughs) Now see, now I look back very fondly at that music because it, it was such a moment But at the time, and I'm sure some of it is internalized homophobia and all that. But at the time, I was like, no, (laughs) I I couldn't handle it. I don't know. I identified with that so much because it was my experience. And I don't know that anyone else had ever expressed having that experience in that scene before. Uh And I, I then questioned the idea of affect and how much of that presentation is affect as well, where it's like, okay, I need to find where my tribe is. So I'm going to like this music, dress this way, act mm-hmm. this way to easily identify myself. Yeah. And because I survive. Even, yeah. Because I even run into that sometimes now where I feel like I need to call out my queerness and other people in order for people to realize that I'm queer. Yeah. Yeah. And I think 
it feels to me like I do and like you do feel a responsibility to call it out because right. you can pass. And so it's good for people to know that they're talking to a gay person. That's important. Guy Branham calls it the problem of camouflage versus plumage, right? You have the the dual responsibilities of like a little bit minding your P's and Q's in the straight world so that you can survive to adulthood and then not get jumped on the train or whatever. But you also have to do enough shit that indicates to the world that you're gay so that you can find your people, so that you can hook up or make friends or whatever. And there is that constant internal push and pull, I think. Yeah. Maybe not for kids today, but for us, for sure. I think maybe for kids that are in communities that are not as accepting as many more than when we were young are now, Yeah. but there's still got to be pockets. I mean, there are clearly still pockets where it is not safe to be queer. Yeah, for sure. And honestly, the place where I grew up is still one of those spaces. I do worry because it does look like kids who are currently growing up where I grew up are worried about the same things as far as stepping out of line at all in any way. And it's still very homogeneous and it's still very conservative and that that worries me. And that's another reason why I I feel like being gay comes up in my writing and I host a podcast with gay people every week and all that kind of thing, because it's important. It's very important to have, there are these little pockets of conservative thought and fear and the stew that I grew up in all around the country, all around the world. And it is very important to give people what you and I did not have, which is somebody a couple decades older, who's like, oh, I vibe with what that person has to say. And they're they're in the world and they're moving through it in a joyful way and they're doing all right. That is a, a really important thing to see. I agree 100%. Yeah. And I think those of us who have the benefit of maybe not being seen as obviously as some others really should sometimes take the onus to be more visible. Yeah. Not only does it broaden the scope of what some people see gay or queer as, um, uh-huh. But it takes a little bit of pressure off the people who don't blend necessarily. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I have so much respect for people who have always been obviously queer in one way or another, because that takes so much strength. You and I can choose when we put it out there, but people who can't or who better than that choose not to. Yeah. Just be like, yeah, I could change the way I say the letter S, but fuck you. I don't want to. Why should I? I have respect for that. So do I. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, some of the things that you do currently. One of which is I I caught wind of you writing for Esquire because you have an advice column for a while. I don't know if you still I did. Yeah. Once in a while we do. But yeah, I did. What was the impetus for that? That was just, I was there and my life is unpredictable and weird. And sometimes I'm very busy and sometimes I'm not. And I was in a place where I wasn't doing anything TV wise. And I was in the office at Esquire. And and my editor at the time was like, why don't you do an advice column? And I was like, why not? So yeah, we did that for a while. It kind of fell by the wayside as things at the website kind of changed a little bit. And my role at the magazine changed a little bit. But yeah, I would love to bring that back. It was very entertaining. 
Good. Thanks. <laughs> I, I miss doing. And by the way, I'm still at Esquire. I still have a regular column in the print magazine and I'm still on their website a lot, but I'm so much happier when I'm writing there more. And I got distracted by some other stuff sort of career-wise, but I'm pitching a whole bunch of new stuff because I just, I need deadlines. Uh, I really do. I need a regular writing schedule. That's because that keeps me making stuff and making stuff keeps me happy. So you're not the type of person who just will log onto the computer randomly or pop open a notebook and be like, oh, I'm going to jot some shit down. Yeah, no, I do, but it, none of it's fit for print. But yeah, I journal and I write a lot and all that kind of thing. But I need the forced stability of regular deadlines. So. Right. Yeah, I understand that needing to have some level of accountability. Yeah, so yeah, it's so important. important to me as well. <laughs> good. Yeah, uh, it's good to recognize that. How did you realize you were diabetic? Well, I, I guess I was in my mid thirties, and, and I was like, I didn't feel different. So I wasn't feeling unwell or whatever. But I went to my regular GP at the time. And got my regular twice a year battery of blood tests and whatever. And my A1C was a little bit high. And so A1C is a, is a measure of blood glucose levels over a period of time. And it was slightly high. And I'd spent a lot of time pretty overweight. I was living in Southern California and had been for a while and become a lot more active. But because I was whatever I was, 35 or something, my doctor was like, well, this is type 2 diabetes, which is the one that is you are more likely to be diagnosed with in middle age or, or when you're not a kid. And so I was like, all right. So he put me on medication kind of, I mean, it wasn't Ozempic, but it was something in the family of, it was a pill, but it had some of the same effects as Ozempic, which is now what people are using to lose weight. I am currently and, on Ozempic. So. Oh, really? Okay. That's trail off of that on something. Okay. Else. Okay. Yeah. All right. So yeah, this was called metformin and Nothing changed as far as my blood sugar, which I was also testing constantly. Nothing really changed. I just got sicker and sicker. And that particular medication made me very sick. Oh, wow. Not all the time, but like once or twice a month, I would just barf like I've never barfed before in my life. It was crazy. And it would just come out of nowhere, oh. which I did not enjoy. And also my blood sugar levels weren't really changing. And so I was like, something's not right. And then I guess 2014 or 15, I got really sick. I started to like, I got to a point where I was like, I'm too skinny, which that has never been my problem. And, and all my GP at the time would do was just like up my dose of metformin, which was making me sick. So I said, is it possible that I have type one, which is the kind where you're immune system shuts down your pancreas. And he was like, nope, that happens when you're a kid and blah, blah, blah. I was like, I, I think you might be wrong. So I wanted a referral to an endocrinologist so I could get these tests. He was like, don't bother. So I was like, oh, fuck you. So I changed my insurance plan so that I could take myself to an endocrinologist. And January 3rd or whatever of that next year, when my plan changed, I went right to an endocrinologist. I got the test done and it was type one. It was just a later presenting type one. And so then I went on insulin. Now I do SIBA, which is a long acting insulin that I, that I take once a day. And then I jab myself with a couple units at mealtime. And that's the way it goes. I'm not on a pump or anything like that, but I'm managing, which is good. And you're also super active, or at least yeah, you know, yeah. judging from Instagram, like you took up yeah. running. 
which I did for a while until my knees were like, nah, dude. Yeah, I'm looking at that moment myself. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm doing the New York Marathon this year, and then we'll see. We'll see if I ever do another. So I know people who've done New York and Boston marathons. Mm -hmm. I work with people who run marathons. You're the first person I've had on the podcast who has run a marathon that I'm aware of. And I got to ask, why? Well, the first time I did it, which, by the way, was the week before I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, which is why I was like, I don't think that makes sense. There is no correlation between ener- like activity level or whatever in type 2, but that's the conventional wisdom about it. Right. And so the first time I did it, I, I really did it just because I had been overweight for a while. Like I'd spent most of my 20s kind of chunky and I was active, but I wasn't good to myself. I smoked cigarettes and my dietary habits were not good. And I just kind of felt like, why not see if I can do this? I just want to see if I can finish. And I did it and I finished and it felt great. Well, it didn't actually feel good at all. It felt terrible, but emotionally it felt good. And then I did it a second time after I was diagnosed with type one with a group of type one diabetics in a team. And, and so we did that in 2018 and I'm doing it again because I'm 52 now and I am more aware than I've ever been that my body will not be able to do the things that I want to make it do forever. I, I might get a few more years than I thought, but it's like the warranty does run out at a certain point. And I just, I want to keep doing these things until I can't do them. And in a way, I mean, they are intensely painful, but they're also fun in a weird way. I'm going to take your word for that fun part, Dave Holmes. Mm-hmm. Uh, three, four miles. Cool. Uh, yeah. 26.2 or 28 point, however many. It's 26.2. Yeah. I remember going to the New York Marathon one year and Al Roker ran the marathon that year. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was maybe like 10 or 12 years ago, or whatever it was. And I was like, Al Roker looks miserable. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just like, I'm never yeah. doing this. Yeah. I mean, it hurts. It really hurts. But also it forces you to mentally do the work. The last six miles in particular are really mental. And I also, I don't know, feel like there are things in my life that I've given up on or challenges that I sort of half-heartedly did and then kind of lost interest and didn't complete them. And so those things have nagged at me for a long time. And I, th- I think the idea of just committing to something, saying, I'm going to cross that fucking finish line and doing it no matter how much it hurts was something that I, for my own self-esteem, I needed to do. I understand that totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good luck to you at the marathon. Thank you. Well, come and observe. I and would love it. Is there anything career-wise or personal-wise that you still like aspire to? Is there one thing or it could be more than one thing mm-hmm. that you're like, I'm part of the way there. I want to get there. I'm not there yet. Yeah, I kind of want to build like not my own record label, but sort of my own record label of content of podcasts and substacky kind of things. I want to kind of cordon off my own little corner of the internet and build it around the stuff that I love. I spent a lot of years in this business feeling like I was the beneficiary of good luck, which I am, but I've been at it long enough to be like, all right, now let me build my own thing and not feel like I am hanging on to someone else's, if that makes any sense at all. And of course, I want to get a a sitcom pilot sold. And a work of fiction is always something that's kind of in the back of my mind. 
but those two things are both intimidating. And so, yeah, the game is to mentally talk myself through the intimidation. Is the personal and professional intertwined for you? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. This is a thing actually my therapist is on me about a lot is who are you outside of work? And it's a strange one because my work is me kind of literally for a living talk and write and, and try to force an emotion or an opinion into something that is readable and understandable. And so it's weird, but my product is me in a way. And so there isn't much of a separation, which probably is not super healthy, but whatever. That's I, life. I think about that. And from an entertainment sense, there is the idea that everyone's playing a character. And even if you're a pop star, even if you're Beyonce, mm-hmm. Beyonce is probably not Beyonce at home. Right. Beyonce on stage is like Beyonce at home times a thousand. Yeah. Whereas Dave Holmes is, to, to me, always just been Dave Holmes. I think your right. readability is part of what I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, cool. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate and that. You've never come across as someone who is putting on airs or being extra. Uh, right. Because they're in the public eye. Right. So well, thanks. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. But, and this kind of relates to what I was saying earlier, trying to build my own thing or sell my own pilot or, or whatever. And I've done a lot of what I wanted to do with my life. And I'm happy about that. But I think the stuff that is left for me to do, the missing element is a, like a pushiness or not a pushiness, but a forcefulness, maybe a selling of myself and my talent and my value so that someone will take a chance on me doing something that is outside of the corridor of what I do. Like you need to, in this business, really represent for yourself. And I I know that I tend to take my foot off the gas with that with the self-promotion and with the determination, because I don't want to be seen as not relatable, or I don't want to be seen as somebody who has an ego or a self-image that is out of step with reality or whatever. It's good to be relatable. And I'm glad that I come off that way. But the older I get, the more I realize what a trap that is, because it's fun to seem like, you know, a person that someone's friends with, and that's great. But there does come a time, especially when your product is yourself, that you've really got to be gutsier or more determined or less timid about representing yourself or standing up for yourself or advocating for your own value. So anyway, that's the work of the next few years. Is that wanting to be seen as alpha? Is that kind of, is that being a nice Midwestern guy? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, (laughs) maybe. I think valuing the other people's perception of me as genial rather than being the sometimes unpleasant person you have to be when you really dig in and advocate for yourself. Yeah, it's definitely, it's that Midwestern Catholic be a good boy thing because that's what got you by. Right, right. And I don't know that that's changed over the years. It's really interesting. I've also, I think, had to learn to advocate for myself a little bit. It's not being an asshole. It's no, just 
getting what you want. I would like to be the type of person that does that without stepping on anybody's toes. My intention is never to be a dick to anybody. No. But at the same time, I think there's an art and a science to getting what you want without being an asshole. Now, whether you perceive it as an asshole or something completely different, that's on them, not you. (laughs) Yeah, you can't control that, but it is, yeah, it's the idea of being easy to work with and whatever. It just can often be a trap. It's like gratitude. Gratitude is good. The idea of being grateful for what you have is terrific. You should have a practice of, of writing down what you're grateful for and all that kind of thing. But when it comes to your work, if you're an artist of some kind, or any kind of person, but specifically if you're an artist, it is very easy to relax into the idea of, God, I'm so lucky to be here. I'm so lucky to be able to do what I do and and not take the moment and say, my hard work got me here. And the talent that I achieved by working as hard as I did is what got me here. My number didn't come out of a drum on channel four, whatever. Mm-hmm. You can be grateful and you can still demand what you're worth, which that's a very difficult thing for me to do. I get that. They're definitely not mutually exclusive. No, they're not, but they feel that way. Yeah, I get it. We're speaking the same language, I think. Yeah. All of life, when you are an artist who is in business for himself, can feel like asking for a raise all the time. And that I think that's difficult for a lot of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in the interest of time, can I lightning round you a few questions? Absolutely. All right. You mentioned Huey Lewis in your book. Yes. I had similar feelings around the same time. And I Mm. remember reading that piece and then I went on YouTube and watched the I Want a New Drug video. Oh my God. Did you ever get to meet Huey Lewis in person? I sure did. Yeah. I interviewed him for Esquire for the print magazine. Like, what was it? Two, three years ago? Or it was 2020, I want to say. Okay. Because it feels like maybe we were having to wear masks or something. I'm not sure. But yeah, I flew up to Montana. I drove down to his ranch. We drove an ATV. It was the dead of winter. We drove an ATV around the grounds. I only had the one day to spend with him, but he was everything I hoped he would be. (laughs) Including still hot, presumably. Yeah, he looks fantastic. He's definitely older. He's kind of craggier, but he's kind of got that Clint Eastwood sort of steely older guy thing that's just like, yep, still would. All right. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Next question. I'm going to go back to your book for a second. The story about going onto the subway tracks. Uh-huh. Yeah. What yeah. possessed you? <laughs> oh, draft beer, I guess. Whatever was on special at whatever shithead bar I was at. Yeah, I did once in, I guess, about 95. Yeah, my train was stalled at 77th and my stop was 86th. And I didn't walk on the tracks. I did not actually walk on the tracks. Okay. But I did get out of the car. The doors were open. The train wasn't moving. It was like three in the morning. But there is that little walkway that's on the same level as the subway platform. It's where the workers come in and out. And I did walk on that for those nine blocks. (laughs) And once I got over how scared I was and how like, like, as it was happening, I was like, what? what are you fucking doing? What are you doing? But there were steps that went down even further because there's stuff that goes on down beneath the subway tracks as far as like building other tunnels or servicing cars or whatever. So I went down and I checked that out a little bit, but then I started to hear like human noises. And I was like, there's people who live down here and I'm not one of them. And 
And so it is time for me to go. And when I got out at 86th Street, I was fully head to toe, soot and ash. <laughs> looked like a chimney sweep. Absolutely the dumbest thing I've ever done. And I should be dead. I've lived in New York City for three quarters of my life. And mm -hmm. that thought, the thought of going onto the tracks or, or even like leaving the platform in any mm -hmm. way, shape or form has like never interested me. And just the idea of it scares me shitless. Well, it should. It should. That's one of those things that sh is, it's healthy that, it, yeah, it's like it should scare you because it's good. not good for you. Good. Yeah. It's like heroin. That should scare you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah. Working for Esquire, did, huh? and it doesn't really seem like a bro place, mm -hmm. but it is a men's magazine. Mm -hmm. And do you ever feel at odds with anything that they're necessarily trying to put across? I don't. I really don't because... Because I, I feel like it's, they're trying to answer the same questions that our culture is. And I think they're doing a really good job of, of answering and exploring it, which is like, what does it mean to be a man now? And like, where for most of the last century, it we define being a man as like not doing woman shit. Like we, we define masculinity in many ways in opposition to femininity. Right. And, and then these other kind of noble things like providing for your family and going off to war and not being afraid of a fight and all that kind of shit. But like, but too often culturally we default to just like not being a woman or not acting like a, like an F word or whatever, right. you know, right. that was, that's what it was until pretty recently. And now this like new generation has come along and a lot of my coworkers are like in their thirties and forties and they are less hung up about, about like living up to that like 1980s masculine ideal or 20th century masculine ideal or whatever. And like, be like being vulnerable and sensitive and, and, and inquisitive and, and like some are, some are straight and some are gay. It, and it's, it's pretty mixed between male and female now. And it's, it, it feels like now we are beginning to define like masculinity as its own thing. And if it's in opposition to anything, it's in opposition to being a child. You know what I mean? And not not to being a woman or a homosexual or whatever. It's like, it, it's, it's, it's being an adult maybe is kind of what we're exploring now. In essence, yeah, it is a style magazine and our style coverage is almost all for men, but it's, it doesn't, it doesn't feel, it's not a bro-y place, which I'm, I'm really psyched about. Yeah, I think maybe without context, some people think men's magazine and they think like barstool sports. Sure. Or they think details, which was yeah. a little less broy, but still kind of like it, eh, but it was. Yeah. So. yeah. 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 Still a little, little, little problematic. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I'm really proud of the, the work that we're doing now. Good deal. And, and uh, have been right? since we got there. I, it's it, it, that Esquire was a magazine that really, there were so many good humor writers there in the 80s and 90s and and it was like that was the the magazine that i would grab and it, it just had like a, such a strong voice and it was kind of bro-y but the whole all of culture was and right. i'm i'm happy to i'm really happy to be there and i'm happy to be there at a time when it's sort of changing course a little bit as it always did like it the magazine was different in the 90s than it was in the 70s and different in the 70s than it was in the 50s and so um, as we are it, yeah as we are I, well, as we try to be, as yes. maybe as we are. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
All right, one last question. Sure. Uh, what is the coolest thing about being in a long-term relationship? Oh, wow. It's just kind of the like stability. We're not, neither of us are, we're not near our families. Ben's family's in North Carolina, mine's in St. Louis. And so we like see them a few times a year. So we're not like our families aren't intertwined really the way that like my brother's wives' families are with with mine. Sure. And and we don't have kids and we are not going to have kids. And there's there's a lot that I was like raised to think was raised to think like relationships were like. And it's like, that's not what we do. But what is great is just like knowing that you're knowing that your person is at home, like coming home and knowing that your person is there is really nice. And being the person who is at home is nice. It's uh, yeah. I mean, it's, there are like thrills to relationships, certainly in like in the early years and that, and there, there it's peaks and valleys, but the, the interesting stuff is on the other side of the exciting stuff. If that makes sense. Like it's the, the, the stuff that's good for you is like after and in between the stuff that's like sexy and thrilling. Right. Yeah. Know? I mean, there's, everybody talks about new relationship energy and how, but I do think that there is for me anyway, and I say this as a single person, what I'm going for is the stability part is the, the, what people would think is maybe mundane, I guess. Yeah. 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 That's, that's fun. It's cool to do shit with people. It is. It really is. <laughs> Who would imagine? Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's necessary. I agree. I agree. I agree. All right, Dave. Well, I'm not going to take up too much more of your time. It looks like well, this has really been fun. Like, it, it, this is, uh, absolutely. I thank you so much for uh, for having me. I'm really thank you. I, I really enjoy what you're doing. Yeah, thank you for uh, letting me kind of cold call you and be like, Dave, can you do this That's thing? It. I love it. <laughs> no, I'm into it. I'm into it. And thank you for like asking the questions of, of me and other people and, and exploring the areas that I, that, that, that are, that are interesting and that we need to be talking about. I find this shit so fascinating. I yeah. Mean, a, I like talking to people. So that's the first yeah. thing, but also yeah. it's just, it's stuff that I don't get to sit around in a group and talk to people about on a regular basis. So when I'm right. able to, to have these conversations, it's as illuminating for me as I hope it is to the people listening. So I, yeah. it's, it's like having a free therapy session almost. Yeah, it really, it is. It's, it's really nice. And yeah, it, it's, it, we should be doing it more and we should be doing it earlier in our lives. I agree. But better late yeah. than never. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Dave, please keep in touch. I want to, yeah. know, hope this is a friendship in the making and yeah. you know, not just kind of a one-off thing. Yes, um, please. Let me know I'm when you're recording. in New York. I will. I'm in very briefly next week, but it's just, it's like a work kind of in and out thing, but I'll, I'll be back for a proper stay awesome. uh, soon. Well, I, I would love to grab a coffee or something like that. Yeah, whatever, whatever sure. Where are you in the city? I'm in Brooklyn. My job is in the East Village, right next to where Tower Video used to be. Oh, how I miss it. I walk past it every day and I'm just like, mm. <laughs> so. mm. 
Wow. It, it just it is you know. Yeah. Just- Thank you so much, Dave, for taking the time to speak with me and be on the podcast. And uh, good luck with the marathon. I. You know, I will uh, try to be there cheering you on. Uh, don't lose a toenail or anything like that. I'm sure you will do just fine. Anyway, if you want to know more about Dave Holmes, you can follow him on Instagram at Dave Holmes. You can also read his writing at Esquire.com. Um, you can listen to his podcasts. Um, he has a few of them, or he's had a few of them over the years. Uh, I distinctly remember there being True Story, which was or True Story, which was a podcast that he did with my friend Mike Doty. Uh, he did a podcast about the uh, pop R&B group Sudden Impact slash White Guys. Uh, just so much stuff that he has done over the years. Uh, I, I appreciate him and uh, the things that he does and his perspective so much. So uh, make sure you check Dave out uh, wherever there are podcasts or there's writing or you know anywhere on the space of the in- in the space of the internet where there is commentary. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, you get access to exclusive episodes, you get episodes a little earlier than the general public, you get a cool-ass sticker, lots of stuff, once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music, and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace